Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash art of man and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash art of man, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash art of man. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When you train your body, you actually don't get stronger while you're lifting weights. You get stronger after your training session is over and during your recovery period. For your muscles to fully adapt and recover, during this recovery period, you need plenty of food and get plenty of sleep. So to get really strong, you need to take your recovery as serious as you take your training. But here's the thing. What's true for the body is true for the mind as well. At least that's what my guests today argue. The names are Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus, and they're the co-authors of the book, Peak Performance, Elevate your game, avoid burnout, and thrive with a new science of success. Today on the show, Brad and Steve share how their respective backgrounds in elite running and business consulting taught them the importance of rest and recovery from brain work. We begin our discussion on how the American ethos of 24-7 grind and hustle actually hindered performance in school and work. We then dig into the science of burnout, what it is, how it feels, and why it happens. And then Brad and Steve share how you can start incorporating recovery periods into your intellectual life that will allow your psyche to get stronger and more resilient. If you've been feeling burnt out from work or school, or if you simply want to perform better, this episode is for you. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash peak performance. All right, Brad Stolberg, Steve Magnus, welcome to the show. Yeah, great to be on it. Thanks for having us. So you guys just published a book together, Peak Performance, Elevate Your Game, Avoid Burnout, and Thrive with a New Science of Success. Uh, before we get into this, because it's about uh, workplace, how to how to not avoid work burnout in the workforce, uh, you guys have some interesting backgrounds. Uh, one of you is a is a coach for distance runners. Um, the other one who, who writes about human performance. So guys, he, Brad, start off maybe with you, your background, and then Steve, and then how you two got together to write this book. Sure. So right out of undergraduate school, I went to work for the large international consulting firm McKinsey and Company, and I absolutely loved it. I was a total pusher, type A personality, really quite ambitious, probably a slightly fragile ego too, which is a dangerous combination to turn someone into a workaholic. So um, I threw myself into the work in and very quickly ramped up and started working 80 to 90 hour weeks. And it wasn't really the fault of McKinsey and Company. I mean, granted, they push people, but I was diving in well beyond what I had to. And it was great. For about a year, I was completely dialed into my work, really thriving, felt on top of the world, was advising CEOs of Fortune 500 companies at like the age of 22. So I thought I was in a pretty good spot. But about a year into that, into that experience, 
I just started to feel really burnt out. So emotionally, kind of losing motivation and a little bit apathetic, asking myself, what am I doing with my life? And then also physically. So struggling to sleep, even in the six to seven hours I was formally sleeping, struggling with sleep, cold hands and feet. So really just kind of this, this culmination of physical and emotional symptoms made me step back and realize something's wrong, like this isn't sustainable. And the irony is most of my projects at McKinsey and Company were in the healthcare um, industry. So here I am advising healthcare companies on what to do, and I'm not very healthy myself. So um, that led me to make a good realization, I guess, at that point in my life that this just this path was not sustainable as it was. Um, so I decided to uh, to go back to graduate school and of all things study public health. And it was in graduate school while studying public health that I became really interested not just in the prevention of disease, but what it means to thrive and in particularly what it means to perform at a really high level, kind of like I was doing for that first year. But how can someone do that and sustain it? So then ever since public health school, about five, six years ago, um, I've been writing about health and the science of human performance. And that's where I am today. Awesome. And Steve? Yeah, it's funny. Our stories are actually kind of similar, pretty similar, but in completely different domains. So I grew up, as you said, I, I coach distance running now, and but I grew up as a runner myself. I uh, was a really good runner in high school, almost like phenom status. So my senior year of high school, I was the number one ranked miler in the country for high schoolers, number like three or four in the world for under 20. Uh, year olds, I ran a, a mile in four minutes and one second, which is right off that like magical, mystical uh, four minute barrier that lives in our sport. And um, I was running and competing at the highest level. So I was running professional track meets as a high school senior. And at that point, like my world was running like that's all that mattered. I was obsessed with it. I went to school, but I couldn't tell you how I did on grades or anything like that. Like, it didn't matter. So my, my future um, plan was, okay, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to compete in the NCAA. I'm going to improve. I'm going to try and win national titles. And then clear in my vision was like Olympics and let's go for it. And given my performances up to that time, they were all realistic goals. So I did what any athlete who had a desire to run or to compete professionally did. And I chose my college university. I mean, only almost solely based on running. So I was obsessed runner performing at a really high level. But what happened was I was putting so much into it that I eventually just burned out. Physically, emotionally, psychologically, I was done. I mean, the fastest mile I've ever run, even after you know six, seven years of trying to run faster, is as an 18-year-old kid in high school, which should not happen. Like no one hits their physical maturity peak as a 18-year-old. But what got in my, what I realized was that I got in my own way, and that that drive to succeed, that. Um, that motivation, that internal motivation to be great was also the thing that eventually led to my downfall. Because what what hurt me as a athlete and as a person is similar to Brad is I was a extreme pusher. If I was going to do something like it was going to be 110 percent, it was going to be, OK, this is the work I need to do. I'm going to do more than that. And what I we 
I quickly realized after uh, becoming burnout is is that's not sustainable, right? And you asked about us getting together, and I think to write this book, and I think that our stories um, kind of led us to this connection where we both had performed at a very high level um, nationally, internationally, but we both had this question as we kind of went through our, our second phases of life is, can you reach that level without having the risk of burnout, the drawbacks, the mental psychological fatigue? Um, can you do it in a healthy, sustainable way? So it's kind of funny when when this book project came about, um, Brad sent me an email who I'd gotten to know through his writing. Uh, he sent me an email saying, hey, I've got this idea for a book project. What do you think? And I sent an email back like two minutes later and said, oh my gosh, man, like I'm thinking about the same thing. I went through the same thing. And here's like 40 pages of notes that I've been keeping in anticipation of doing something on this topic. So it was kind of like one of those weird life uh, happenstances where it was like, all right, it's meant to be like, let's delve into this thing. Yeah. What I love about the book is you guys take um, stuff from sports science and, you know, the stress recovery adaptation cycle. We'll get into that in a little bit, but apply it to the world of, you know, business or your work life. You know, Brad, I'm curious, you worked for a, you know, a pretty high performance consulting firm. Why do you think it's so important for people in today's economy to learn how to perform at their peak, but not just at their peak for, you know, a short period of time, but for the long game? So, I think it's two things. I think the first is around just technology. And in, in, in the last 15 years, there's been the emergence of all of these technologies. I mean, just think about like the, the growth of smartphones, both in their prevalence and what they can do over the last 10, 15 years. So we're always connected. And as a result, there's always a temptation to do more work. And the irony is all of these devices, they were supposed to make it easier to have some work-life balance, right? Like more flexibility. But what it really means is that you can just always be working. So I think it's more important than ever to, to understand the importance of kind of reining yourself in and not consistently working. Because if you do consistently work, it's just a matter of time. You're going to end up like I did, like Steve did, um, pretty burnt out. And if not burnt out, then your performance will suffer. Yet at the same time, it's a more competitive economy than ever. Right? The same devices that allow us to work all the time have really kind of opened things up to a global talent pool. So it used to be, I'm just competing with the people in my community, then I'm competing with the people in my state, then I'm competing in the people with my in my country. Excuse me. Now, almost every industry is international. So there's increased competition. There are devices that allow us to work all the time. So you combine that pressure with the ability to work all the time, and the result is a lot of people are feeling burnt out. Um, the literature says that it's something between 40 or 50% of people right now are experiencing burnout. What is, I mean, is burnout an actual thing? Like it's like a psychological diagnosis or is it uh, just a way that we describe fatigue? What, what exactly is burnout? Cause we hear it all the time, but I, is it, is it an, is it an actual thing? <laughs> yeah. So it's a good question. So it is an actual thing and it's, I, I describe it as kind of the tipping point of fatigue. So anyone that pushes and works really hard is going to feel fatigue, and, and maybe we'll get into this later. That's actually not a bad thing. It's a pretty good thing. You can't really grow unless you get fatigued and you push yourself. But when you keep on pushing yourself and you don't respect your, your mind and your body's need to step back, then fatigue spills over into burnout. 
and burnout is more than just feeling tired. It's really like a loss of, uh, excuse me, a complete loss of motivation. So there's a big difference between fatigue and apathy. I think burnout is almost closer to depression than fatigue. And then physiologically, um, the symptoms of burnout often mirror the symptoms of just stress overload. So um, like I said in myself, cold hands and feet, inability to sleep, frequent headaches, onset of bad anxiety if you've never had that happen before. So a whole range of things that are definitely a, a step further than just being fatigued. Yeah, Steve, this sounds a lot like overtraining in the world of sports science. Like that's what burnout, like it's like a sort of psychological overtraining. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, and that's what I think we realized in, in doing this book and coming at it from two different angles is my background is in addition to coaching as a, as an exercise physiologist. So you see all these kind of symptoms and these ideas in the sports science world and you realize, Hey, like that, that person over there burning out from, you know, working 70, 80 hour weeks is just the same as like me burning out from lifting too much and um, not being in and doing too much conditioning and not being able to sustain it. And it's actually kind of funny as like the, um, the symptoms mimic each other very well, as Brad said, the apathy, the lack of motivation. But you can also see things on like a physiological level where, where you'll see like either very heightened stress hormones like cortisol through the roof and people are burnout or the opposite side is they just can't like they can't um, get any stress hormones so that when it comes to get like excited to take on the day it's almost like they've they've run out of fuel so they can't get that that natural bump that um, allows us to perform at a higher level so as I said earlier the book you guys basically took this uh, stress, recovery adaptation cycle from the world of uh, sports science. And I love it because I'm keyed into that because I, I lift weights. And so I'm, I'm always worried about, okay, am I adding enough stress? Am I doing adequate recovery? And that's how you get stronger is that the cycle. For those who aren't familiar with it, can you describe like the stress recovery adaptation? Like how does that work in say uh, running or weightlifting or in sports? And how have you guys taken that and applied it to the world of just work? So if you think about stress recovery adaptation in sport, I think that the easiest way to describe it is to think of how you'd strengthen your biceps muscle on your arm. So when you go to the gym, if you pick up way too heavy of a weight, something that is beyond what you've ever even dreamed of lifting before and you try to lift it, odds are you're going to injure yourself. That's too much stress. Now, the flip side is if you go to the gym and you pick up like a two or three pound weight, something that hardly weighs anything at all, you could sit there and curl that thing all day and your bicep's not going to grow. It's not going to get stronger. That's not enough stress. So the first part of making a physiological muscle grow is to find a weight that is the right dose of stress. So it should be something that is very challenging, takes you damn near close to fatigue, but isn't so challenging that you're going to throw out your back or tear your bicep tendon ripping it. So then the second part of getting a muscle to grow is how often you stress it. So even if I found that sweet spot weight, if I lift weights every single day really hard, same thing. I'm going to get injured. I'm going to burn out. Like literally my muscle is not going to recover in between sessions and it's going to fatigue. So what you've got to do is you've not only got to find that right amount of stress, but you also have to allow for rest after you stress the muscle. So it's really interesting. People think that a muscle gets stronger and grows when you're in the gym lifting weights, but that's not the case. When you're in the gym lifting weight, you're actually tearing the muscle down. 
the muscle doesn't get stronger unless you rest. So it's while you're sitting on the couch, while you're sleeping, that's when your physiological growth occurs. So you almost want to think of it like lifting the muscle is just, or excuse me, lifting the weight is just applying a stimulus, but that stimulus only has value if you step away and let the muscle recover to grow. Now, what we found is that that same cycle holds true for psychological and cognitive growth. So if you think about how creativity works and problem solving, what, what the research shows is that it follows almost the same exact cycle. So you want to immerse yourself in the work that you're doing, and that can be reading, research, um, working at the whiteboard, you know, you name it. But the breakthrough moment, the breakthrough thoughts, they tend not to happen when you're actually working. They tend to happen when you step away from the work. And that's because your mind, it consolidates, stores, connects information, not while you're actively working, but when you step away. And it's also when your creative engine turns on. So I think, again, the, the easiest to understand example is probably having an aha moment in the shower. So there's a reason this happens, because most people have been working throughout the day and thinking on something, and then they go shower, and the shower allows them to kind of turn off their mind and zone out, and it's during that time period where they're zoned out that an aha moment can occur. Same thing happens with taking a walk, waking up from a nap. I mean, there are all kinds of examples of kind of stressing your mind and then stepping away, letting it recover for a bit, and then having a breakthrough thought. Yeah, and you mentioned like the recovery is probably the most important part of this process, but it's overlooked, not just in sports, but in the world of work. Why, Steve, why do you think that is? Like you, you, you've probably seen coached athletes who they're just like, and this happened to you, it's just go, 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 grind, grind, grind. I'm going to do CrossFit every day. I'm going to train every day. Uh, and then, you know, Brad, you see this in, in your, your work history, just go, go, go. Like, why do we have this ethos, uh, particularly in the United States, of just constant grinding, right? I, you see those memes on Instagram, like a rise and grind, right? Like, you gotta, what's going on there? Yeah, I think it, I think you can hit the nail on the head with it. It's just in our kind of DNA and our ethos, right? If you look at other countries, right, particularly some European countries, they don't have that same uh, demeanor, right? They still work hard, all that other stuff. But if you look at, for example, how many vacation days or their off days or their even things like their lunch breaks, they're not, you know, 15 minutes at the desk, they're going to the cafe for two hours, you know? And if you look at other countries like that, that ethos isn't there. And I think part of the reason it is in the in the US is because we have this idea that to reach the next level, to get where we wanna be, to reach our American dream, like it takes work and effort. And that is very true. Like we should be proud that you have to put in the work to get better. But on the flip side of that is what generally happens is we obsess over the idea of putting in work and not because it has better outcomes, but because we feel more productive, right? So when I go to, when I go to the gym every day, I feel like I'm getting better. When I stay an hour or two after work, um, after closing time, like I feel like I'm doing work. The same thing happens with multitasking, right? We mentioned in the book, like if you look at the science, something like 98% of people cannot multitask. Like it's just doesn't work in the brain. Okay, so the vast majority of us can. 
But still, if you ask most people, like they multitask. We're at home on the computer, well, you know, watching TV, while talking to our wife or husband, right? It's always more things than um, than we realize. And the reason that we choose to do things like that is because it feels like we're getting more things done. And I think one of the reasons that we wrote this book and one of the reasons why we tried to shift that emphasis is that rest, as Brad mentioned earlier, is when you grow, it's when you get better, it's when you adapt. So if we can like shift that mindset a little bit, then I think we'll see better outcomes than just that sensation of effort. Yeah, the 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 one quick thing that I'd also add in in and it's so it's kind of funny. It, it it parallels I think meditation in America. And Steve mentioned like productivity. I think that our ethos is so let's be productive. So meditation has taken on not as like a, a deep spiritual contemplative practice, but a lot of people are meditating because the end is that they'll be more productive. And I think it's kind of the same thing with rest. You know, in European countries, people rest because they enjoy rest. But here, what I found um, in the response to this book and then working with entrepreneurs is that the best way to frame rest is to let someone know that, hey, rest should be seen as a part of your work, right? Rest is going to make you more productive. If you just tell someone to rest because it's going to feel good and it's good for their health, they're never going to do it. To Steve's point, they're going to be scared that they're sacrificing work. But if you have someone understand that it's actually when you step away and when you rest that you're going to do your best thinking and problem solving, then all of a sudden rest doesn't become something that's separate from the work. It becomes a part of the work and people are more likely to respect it. But I think it all just comes back to that kind of productivity that's, that's in our ethos. Yeah, that's pretty funny. You have to frame rest as work to get Americans to to do it. Bingo. It's it's funny and it's sad <laughs> that we're at this point, but it, whatever works. So let's talk about the stress aspect. All right. So in long distance running, right, the way you increase stress is intensity going faster or volume, the length of running and weight training, same thing. You can increase the weight or increase the amount of reps you do to add stress. How do, can we increase stress in our job? Uh, where you know week after week, so that we're per, you know contributing to this stress adaptation, stress recovery adaptation cycle. So I I think it's it, it's a question that we get asked a lot because it's not as clear cut as you know I was lifting a twenty five pound weight now I'm going to lift a thirty pound weight, but if you think about the difference between a twenty five pound weight and a thirty pound weight, it's really just the next logical step. So how I like to think about increasing stress in, in a professional or um, even just in personal relationships, but, but in a way that's non-physiological, is to ask yourself, what am I doing now? Where do I want to be? What skills, what capacities do I want to develop? Where do I want to go in my career? And what's the next logical step to get there? And then I think another helpful way to, to really hone in on, on, on what that next logical step is is it shouldn't be something that you think that if you take it on, you're going to succeed 10 out of 10 times because that's not, that's not going to stimulate growth, right? That's just kind of sitting there lifting the same weight you've always been lifting. Now, the flip side is if you take on something that makes you so nervous that you can't sleep at night, that you feel your pulse in your neck, that you constantly are thinking, oh my gosh, I could fail. And if you rate yourself as, oh, I might only succeed three or four out of 10 times, that's not good stress either. That's like going from a 25 pound weight to a 50 pound weight. It's probably not going to work out. So I like to think of it as something that you think that you'll succeed about eight out of 10 times. So there's a little bit of uncertainty, 
right? Like you're just not sure, but you think that if you really hone in and, and give it your all, you'll succeed. And that can be taking on a new project at work. It can be taking the next step in a personal relationship. It can be in my life going from writing articles to writing a book, right? It's not like I went from like a blog to a book. It was a very um, methodical progression. And, and I think that that's the kind of progression that you'd have in the gym. You also want to have that kind of progression outside of the gym. Yeah. And Steve, you guys bring in research from like the flow research from, I can't say his name. I've like, I know there's like a special way you can say Nihai Chikamisi. I don't know. Anyways, the flow guy. <laughs> Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Yeah, we Csik- have to learn that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a prerequisite to write a book about this topic. Right. <laughs> but you guys use that as like that, what the activities that in, engage you in flow that get you in that flow state, that's like, you know, you're, you're, you're pushing yourself when you, once you get there. So how do you know, like, what is the... How do, what are the type of activities that get you into that flow state? So it's it's all about what Brad just talked about, and it's all about challenging, right? It's about like this balance between challenge and this fear of like, can I do it, right? And in the book, we call it taking just manageable challenges, right? So you only get flow if the stress or the challenge is high enough where it's going to make you be focused and attuned and attention, right? You don't get flow by accidentally um, getting there and work. You don't get flow by, hey, I'm just going to go out for a jog and, and walk and, you know, let my mind wander. Like flow only happens if if there is focus and attention to do that. And the only way to get there is if you're challenging yourself. On the flip side of that, it can't be so challenging that there's no hope of you succeeding, right? Because if there's no hope of you succeeding, your mind and your brain's just gonna shut down and be like, this is like a failed cause, right? If I go run a race and I go out way too fast at the start, your brain's just gonna shut you down and fatigue you early, right? And the same thing happens in, in the work environment. So it's really about focused on this just manageable challenge idea where you're taking that, as Brad said, that next logical step. And the way I like to explain it to people is you could feel you should feel a little bit of that like nervousness, right? That little bit of that unease and your, you know, where your shoulders might go up a little bit and you just feel that sensation of like, oh man, like I can do this, but it's gonna be tough to do. Right. And you, you also highlight, I love how you brought in this research, um, you know, struggle is where skill is built. So if you feel like you're struggling, you're in a good place because that means you're, you've reached that, you're, you're, you're not, it's not so bad that you can't do the thing, but like it's hard. Uh, and I guess you bring in research with uh, math tutors. There's certain math tutors that produce students that do better in math compared to other ones. And the difference was some math tutors didn't give the answer right away or show how to do it. They let their, their students struggle a bit with the problem. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and I think that's, again, if we look at some of societal norms right now, is a lot of times as teachers, as coaches, as um, bosses even, whenever we see someone struggling, like the the feeling of what we need to do is to step in, right? Like I see someone struggling out on the track as a coach, like the idea is like, oh, I better step in and like correct them right away so that they can learn. And what the research shows, which you just rightly pointed out, is that like growth doesn't come when you're given an answer right away, right? So if I'm struggling on math and then my teacher steps in and says, oh, here's how you 
do it. Here's the answer. Like that sends a signal to, to me and my brain that says, oh, okay, like if I don't know how to do this, it's okay. Like someone's going to help me out. And the reality is to show value, to show growth, like we need to struggle and comprehend and try and like figure things out in, in our mind a little bit before our, our brain kind of says, all right, this is of high importance. I really need to figure this one out. And then if we step in and get the answer, that's fine. But it's like really having to struggle is where our skills are developed. So Brad, I guess this means uh, if you're a boss or a manager, you need to let your folks flounder a bit before you swoop in and save them. Yeah, it, 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 it again, I, you know, I keep on going back to that that gym analogy, but you don't want your employees um, to just be sitting there lifting the three pound weight all day because they're going to get bored. You want to look out for them and make sure they don't pick up the fifty pound weight way too soon. But uh, you want to help them find that 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 kind of just manageable challenge, as Steve said, that twenty five to thirty five pound weight, and and struggle a little bit before you come in to help. Um, and I think that it, as a manager, it's a lot easier to help than to let someone struggle. Letting someone struggle takes a lot more guts, but that's where growth um, that's where growth occurs. Right, and so this also means you have to be willing to accept some mistakes. They're they're going to mess up, and you got to be okay with that, and because that's how they're going to learn. Exactly. In 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 context is key, right? If you've got someone working on you know an enormously important initiative that if it fails, it's going to be catastrophic for the company, then that's probably a time where you want to lean in and and you want to kind of stop the struggle bus before it gets too far down the road. But there are very few contexts where that's the case. And to Steve's point about coaches, I think the same is true with managers. I think that the inclination is often to step in and help too soon. And some of the best managers that I've observed, they actually do the opposite. They're really good at seeing what their employees don't see. So they've got the broad view and they can step in if they need to, but they restrain themselves and, and they let folks struggle. Um, and I think it's more fulfilling for the employees, right? If you think about what makes for a good workout, you feel like you've really exhausted yourself and you're just kind of content after. You're like, whew, you know, that was tough. I gave it my all. Now I can step away. And I think that that's also what makes for a, a happy workplace. And also, I guess on the flip side, also for the employee, don't go asking for help right away. You know, try to figure it out on your own. And I, I imagine that's hard for a lot of younger employees who are entering the workforce where they've had someone holding their hand through college with clear instructions what to do. And now they're put in a position where everything's are sort of, things are sort of nebulous. Uh, there's nuance and they have to figure it out on their own. Yeah. There's this saying that I love and, and it's a lot easier to say than to do, but I think a, a really important skill is to be comfortable with being uncomfortable because it's during those times where you're slightly uncomfortable that you grow. So you've got to be comfortable in those spaces and, and really the only, the only way to learn like what's too much discomfort is to try. Um, but if you don't try, then you're just going to end up on this path where you're going through the motions. And that to me is, you know, every bit is, is dangerous as burning out because going through the motions, that's like what leads to midlife crisis. Right. Steve, on this topic of becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable, you guys also highlight research that shows how our mindset towards stress can influence whether that stress has a, 
is it has a positive effect, a growth effect, or a negative effect? So what does that research say about our mindset towards stress? Yeah, so we're used to seeing stress as kind of a negative thing, like where, hey, you know, I have to go do this big presentation or this big meeting and, you know, stressing and anxiety is getting in my way. Like it's a negative, it's going to pull me down. But what recent research shows, which you highlighted, is that what actually matters is how we appraise things. So as we appraise it as like this is a going to be a negative, then what happens are, is our body follows. So our hormonal shift will occur where we might have high stress hormones and cortisol through the roof and all of a sudden like we're in a bad position to perform. But the opposite side occurs if, is if we see it as, um, for lack of a better term, a positive. So as we see this stressful situation as an opportunity to be challenged, to grow, to see where my limits lie, like then what happens is the body follows in a positive direction. So instead of, you know, cortisol going up through the roof to prepare us for that stress, we might see like a hormone like testosterone increase a little bit, which kind of gives us that uh, maybe a little bit of a needed boost and um, aggression to get through that performance. And you see this, whether it's in the office place, whether it's in presentations or whether it's outside on the um, athletic field. And actually one of my favorite points of this from a coaching standpoint is that a lot of times when we see someone stressed, we go up to them and say, hey, relax, calm down, it's going to be okay. And actually, that's like the worst thing in the world you can do. Because if you think about it, if I come up to someone, let's say before they're about to compete in a big game, and I say, hey, relax, what that person's mind gets, the message it receives is that, oh my gosh, like I must look super stressed, and that's going to hurt my performance So I need to force myself to relax. And what happens is if we force ourselves to relax, like our body just goes into this cycle of being more and more stressed because we think stress is a negative. So in the book, we call it um, turning anxiety into excitement. So it's about shifting our mindset so that, well, yes, you're going to feel the same sensations that like nervousness, that feeling in the shoulders um, because it, you know, it's a stressful time. What you should see is that's an opportunity. Now, as I like to tell people what I work with, if you start feeling those sensations of stress, all that means is your body saying like, all right, we're about to take our performance to another level. Like we need to kick in these hormones and get ready. Like we're feeling this way because um, we care and it matters. So let's get ready and go to battle. And, And I think perspective here is also huge, right? I mean, if I think about the times in my life when I actually felt most stressed and kind of like down and not in a good spot, looking back, I grew more from those experiences than any other experiences. So it it definitely holds true on a micro scale, like Steve said, but I also think on a macro scale. So when you're in a moment where you're feeling really stressed, it sucks. It's awful. Don't get me wrong. And if you can take that perspective and just kind of remind yourself of, Hey, it's like when I've been through tough times, when I've been most stressed, those are the experiences that have actually led to the most growth. Just reminding yourself of that can, can really help like shift the narrative. And then like Steve said, it, your, your biochemistry, your hormones follow. Yeah, and I loved also the research you highlight how you know, managing your expectations about 
challenges can help you get through the challenge. So, you know, Steve, you talk about runners, like having your runners do some self-talk saying, yes, this is going to be hard. Yes, this is going to suck. And somehow that helps them get through the hardness and the suckiness of a, of a hard run. It, yeah, it's all expectations. You know, it's funny how the mind works and how, I, how the mind and body kind of combine and, and work together. But our, as I said, like our temptation is almost always to, when we're facing something hard, is to downplay it, right? If I have a big presentation and say like, hey, I've been in this before, like this isn't going to be this stressful. Or if I have a big hard workout, a lot of times what you do is you downplay it and you say, okay, like, yeah, it's hard, but I've done hard things before and uh, I'm going to be okay. And what happens is like your your mind uses that like expectation to judge like, okay, What's the reality of this is like, okay, I'm self-talking myself down so that this isn't going to be that difficult. So then your mind prepares for a thing that isn't that difficult. And then when it becomes really difficult, your mind's like, oh, hey, wait a minute. Like you just five minutes ago were telling me this wasn't going to be that tough. So what we actually have to do is do the opposite of our inclination and sit there and say, hey, this race is going to suck. Like it's going to be tough. It's going to be a challenge. I'm going to be on the pain train and I'm going to have to figure out a way how to get through it. And what happens is when you shift your expectations like that, when the pain starts to come or when that nervousness starts to come, like your body and mind are prepared for it and it knows what to do. Yeah, it helps you maintain that edge. Because I feel like in the, say you do take that approach to a pitch, like, oh, it's no big deal, I've never done it. You get lazy, can cause you to plateau and make mistakes as opposed to when you have that idea, like this is going to be hard. Uh, your, your body, your mind's going to prepare your body to just be on its top game. Exactly, 100%. Yeah. No, yeah, I love, um, I, I do that my my weight training. Like if I know it's going to be a lift I've done before, like, no, it's still going to suck. It's going to be uncomfortable it's okay and just push through it and you'll be fine. Um, so besides these, these, these mindset shifts we can do, what can we do throughout the day to ensure that we get this positive stress? Because we have a lot coming at us. There's family life, there's fires that come up, decisions we have to make every day that add up and you know, it, it increases stress in our, in our minds and our bodies. So what can we do in our day to mitigate the bad kind of stress and focus on that, that growth kind of stress? So I, I think the first thing, in, in, in if you do one thing, this would be the one thing, is to try to carve out a few blocks of time, even just two to three, where you are doing deep focus work. So you're not multitasking, your phone's in the other room, you're distraction free, and you're really getting to put your head down and, and let your mind give its all toward a single objective. Um, that is like the most gratifying type of work. And then that's also the quote unquote good kind of stress that is going to help your brain grow. Um, I think then the second thing would be much along the lines of the first is to just think about the things in your life that are causing stress that are somewhat trivial and try to eliminate those things. You know, the the kind of cliche example is Mark Zuckerberg wears the same hooded sweatshirt every day. Barack Obama had the same suit and he wore the same suit every day. Albert Einstein was known to wear the same exact outfit. And what they're doing is they're not wasting any cognitive energy. They're not, and it's gonna sound crazy, but stress is stress. They're not wasting one-tenth of a percentile of quote-unquote stress to decide what to wear. So they've completely automated that decision. 
And what the research shows is trivial as it may seem, there are so many small decisions that we make throughout the day that they do take a toll on us. So to the extent that you can automate the things that don't really matter, you protect your stress budget for the things that do matter. And, and I'd add on to that is in addition to things that matter and don't matter is it's also about the things that you can control and that you can't control, right? And if you step back and do like a deep dive on um, what causes you stress in the day, a lot of those things are things that you have no control and impact over, right? And if, if I can't have an impact on it, why am I stressing on it? So what I try and do in my own life and suggest to those who I work with is say, hey, like when something is stressed, stressing you out, take a step back and ask like, okay, what's causing this stress? Can I control it? Can I alleviate it or impact it in any way? And if not, then like I've got to learn how to like put that in the back of my mind and move on from it. Right. So this idea of deep work, what does the research say? And like, you know, we should set aside blocks of time for that. Like, how far can we go with that until where, you know, there's diminishing returns? Like, how, how much can we actually do that deep work? So yeah. the, go ahead, Steve. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say, so the research basically says that up to about 90 minutes is the max time at, at one instant that you can um, you can do, do deep focus work for. Now, having said that, it's going to be highly individual. So what we suggest is like keeping track of it when you start doing some deep focus work at, at first and say like, hey, when does my mind start to wander? When do I start feel that urge to like go check my cell phone or go get up and do something else? Like that is your brain telling you in the terms of fatigue that I'm getting tired and I'm not going to be able to sustain sustain this uh, very much longer. It's no different than when you go lift weights and you're on rep number eight of 10 and you're feeling that fatigue. That's your brain telling you like, hey, I'm not going to be able to do this much longer. So step one is like paying attention to it and figuring out where your individual zone lies. But most of the research says between 60 and 90 minutes is about the max that you can push that before you need some sort of uh, break to step away. But it, it's it's almost like when you're um, you're doing any sort of intense exercise, right? The more intense it is, then the shorter that time frame goes before you need a break to recover so that you can repeat it again. So let's talk about recovery. We mentioned earlier, like recovery is where the growth happens. It's not when you're training, not when you're lifting weights, not when you're running, and it's not when you're working really hard on a presentation. So it, for example, in the world of sports, recovery primarily is just like eating enough food, getting enough sleep, letting your muscles rest. What does recovery look like in our professional lives? And Brad, what do you, what's your take on that? So I think it's two, two really important things. The first is letting your mind wander throughout the day. And then the second is sleep. So starting with letting your mind wander, there's a wealth of research, and I touched on this a little bit earlier, that shows that the way that breakthrough thinking and problem solving occurs is that it's only after we've kind of delved into work and then stepped away that our brain, that the creative network in our brain fully comes alive and turns on. There are studies that show that taking a shower, which isn't so pragmatic for people midday, can help spur that kind of mind wandering that leads to creative thinking and problem solving. Um, also taking a walk, meditating, 
listening to music, really just anything that kind of allows you to turn off your effortful thinking, conscious, focused mind. Because um, what the neuroscience shows is that the brain has two networks. In one network, it's called the task positive network. And that's the part of your brain that is on when you're doing deep focus work, when you're effortfully consciously thinking of something. The other part of your brain is called the default mode network. Sometimes it's referred to as the subconscious. And that's the part of your brain where creative thinking and associative linkages occur. And what the research shows is that it's kind of a zero sum game. So when you're effortfully thinking and working on something, that more creative side of your brain it doesn't light up in, in neural imaging. Like when they look at people's brains, it kind of stays dark. So in order to access that more creative side of your brain, you have to turn off the conscious, effortful thinking side of the brain. And the way to do that is to let your mind wander. So again, the activities that I mentioned, walking, meditation, listening to music, looking at pictures, those are really just conduits to letting your mind wander. Um, those would be the types of breaks that you'd want to take throughout the day. So in between periods of deep work, then the second and equally, if not more important way to rest is sleep. So I think it was in early 2000, some researchers in Harvard did a groundbreaking study that showed that it is during sleep that we consolidate link and retain all the information that we were exposed to throughout the day. So if you think about a normal day, we are exposed to so much. Like there's the stuff that we're effortfully thinking and working on, but then there's also like the color of the car in the parking lot and the person that I saw at the grocery store, like just constant stimuli coming in through all of our senses. And obviously we don't retain all of that because if we did, our brains would be completely overcrowded. So the brain does the work of figuring out what to store and where to store it when we sleep. And that's why sleep deprivation can lead to just like terrible cognitive performance, poor self-control. I mean, you name it, almost every single cognitive or psychological function goes down when we don't sleep. So back to kind of like putting the, the American ethos around it, a saying that I've adopted coming out of this book is that sleep is one of the most productive things that you can do. <laughs> because when you sleep, your productivity is going way up. And I mean, I think everyone has had an experience where they are, uh, they have some kind of deadline the next day and they're pushing on it late at night. And then they finally just say, screw it, I need to go to sleep. And then they wake up the next morning and they redo whatever they did because they're so much fresher. And that is like the prime example of the importance of sleep. So besides these little mini breaks you take throughout the day, uh, taking a walk, maybe taking a nap, getting out in nature, what role does like you know, just taking time off from work completely play in the recovery part of this stress recovery adaptation cycle in our professional lives? So I think it's, it's very similar again to, to in athletics. So if you look at the best athletes, um, it, particularly endurance athletes who are really taxing their bodies, most of them after their most important big peak races, they take between two and five weeks off where they don't do anything. They just allow their minds and bodies to completely recover. And that to me is what a vacation should be. So to the extent that one can time their vacations to follow like the culmination of a big work or a big project, that's great because otherwise you're just bouncing from one big stress to the next and all that stress is compiling without an opportunity to kind of, um, you know, deflate a little bit and, and come back to homeostasis. Um, and then the second part about vacation is research shows that uh, just 
you know, taking two days off can prevent the onset of burnout. And for someone that is actually in the midst of burnout and experiencing it, a seven to 10 day vacation can reverse it. And so Steve, how do you, how do you, how can people make this case to their boss that, oh, hey, Mr. Bossman, I need to take more breaks during the day and also need more vacation. Uh, Do you guys have any uh, case studies where an organization, a business allowed their employees to, you know, unplug from work and it actually increased productivity? Yeah, I wish I had the magic answer for convincing your boss. But um, what we try and do is give people the data um, to show that, hey, this isn't me being quote unquote lazy. This is me trying to make sure or trying to increase my productivity for you. So if I'm able to step away during the day, if I'm able to recharge with the vacation afterwards, like I'm going to come back refreshed and more productive. And there was actually a... um, research case study done with a consulting group where they took their um, high-level consultants and essentially said, hey, like at first we're going to give you one night off per week. So not not a day off from work, just like one night where you go home and like you got to put your work away and, and that's it. And the consultants in this case study freaked out, right? They thought like, oh, how are we going to get our work done? Like, I'm going to get bad reviews. I'm going to get fired, like all this negative stuff. And even the people, the bosses who accepted to do this study were kind of worried and freaked out about it. Um, But what ended up happening is that their productivity and their ratings afterwards for this, uh, the work they were doing went up, right? And it increased with them just taking one night off a week. And what they ended up doing is follow-up study to expand this a little bit, increase that recovery, and you saw, again, performance improvement. So I, I really think it's this mindset shift that needs to be ha- that we need to have that makes us realize that, you know, if I'm working all the time at 20% of my max capacity, then what good is that? Like, wouldn't you rather have me work, you know, five days a week, at 100% than every single day, every single hour at 20%. And that's how we have to start looking at this. Recovery is work. That's it. Rest is a part of the work. I mean, that's how we're going to sell it here. I think that's the (laughs) only way to sell it. And to be totally honest, like I'm not above that. That's how I sell it to myself. Yeah. So you guys in the book, uh, what I thought was interesting, you get high level and you talk about the importance of having a purpose and facilitating this stress recovery adaptation cycle. So, so Brad, how can figuring out a bigger purpose help us through this cycle? So this is some of the most fascinating research in the book to me. And I'll start in exercise science. So in exercise science, there are two predominant theories of fatigue. One is called the central governor of fatigue. And what the central governor of fatigue says, that fatigue happens in the brain before the body. So the brain literally shuts down the muscles when the muscles have more to give. And the brain does this because it is an evolutionary programmed protective mechanism. It's saying, whoa, you're pushing to the extreme. If you push any harder, like you might do some real damage and get hurt. So the way that they've studied this is they've had people go into a gym and lift weights, do leg curls till they were completely tapped out, till they said, I cannot do one more curl. Their legs are quivering and shaking. And then they ran an electrical current through the muscle and the muscle contracted with full force. 
So what that told the researchers is that the muscle, the energy system in the muscle still had plenty to give, but the brain was putting the brakes on early by creating the sensation of fatigue. So hold on to that thought. That's the central governor of fatigue. Then the other model of fatigue in exercise science is called the psychobiological model. It's very, very similar. What that model shows is that at any given point of physical exertion, our brain is doing an evaluation and weighing perception of effort, so how hard what we're doing feels versus motivation. And when perception of effort is greater than motivation, we slow down. But when motivation is greater than perception of effort, we keep on pushing. So both of these two predominant theories come at the same thing from the same place, which is that if you have a really strong motivation, then you can push your body further. And what we found is, again, kind of the, the MO of this book, when you look at the management literature, the same thing occurs outside of the gym and in the workplace. So employees that tend to perform best and um, also have long sustainable careers, they tend to find meaning in their work. And in particular, they tend to link their work to some sort of greater cause. And it's the same phenomenon that's happening, right? If you have that motivation that's beyond yourself, something greater than yourself, you're not so worried about protecting yourself. You're willing to put in more work because there's, there's something else there. Um, and you know, I could sit here and talk about the research all day, but I, I think the easiest way to explain it is just to, to ask folks, when, when you're like really working hard, putting in effort, uncomfortable, if you're doing it for a paycheck, or you're doing it because you know that someone else is gonna really benefit and it's gonna make an impact on someone else's life, which way are you more likely to do the work? And almost everyone says the latter, right? It's like for that greater cost. And again, what's happening is in our brain, there's a little switch that says, I'm not so concerned about protecting myself. I'm not so concerned about being uncomfortable because I'm doing this for something beyond myself. Right, so that, that purpose could be, uh, say you're answering emails, it's really mundane. Uh, these emails help me, you know, help people like the clients we serve, or it could be like, this is how I, you know, support my family. It could be anything. Totally. I have a very interesting example with the emails. Um, so, you know, I, uh, before I started writing, I was in a job where I managed a, a big spreadsheet. It was a report and it got published every single month and is in a healthcare system. And Without fail, every month after that report went out, my phone blew up with calls from the local leaders asking me endless questions about the report. And I'm sitting there thinking like, I cannot believe that you're asking the same questions month over month. Like this is so straightforward, nothing has changed. And what would happen is the phone would ring and I'd have that attitude and I'd probably give shitty answers and I wasn't performing at my best, I wasn't happy. And then started getting into this research and I had this, this switch, or this, uh, excuse me, this, this kind of um, flip switched in my mind, which is that report, the contents of that report and those managers, it had direct impact on how patients in this healthcare system were being cared for. So on my phone, I took a little sticky note and I wrote, this report saves lives because if you trace it all the way to its end, it truly does. And then when the phone would ring, my entire attitude shift, I spent more time with these people. I, I was feeling more fulfilled and happy. Same report, same phone calls, but just reminding myself of what the real end was completely shifted my relationship with it. And are there exercises you recommend people go through to figure out their purpose, Steve? Yeah. So we outline a series of um, exercises in the book to, to do that. And what it really comes down to is is figuring out, almost doing a deep dive of, what really matters in your life, right? 
and then looking at what your core values are, right? And assigning, hey, this is what is important to me and this is what I I value in life. And then from there, it's about taking a step back and saying like, okay, out of these core values, like what is the most important thing to to me? Like how do I rank these core values um, among things to see like what really matters? And then the final step of that is to get to what we call the purpose statement. So taking those core values and seeing how how much importance they have to you and then sitting down and say like, okay, how do I fit this into my greater narrative of life, right? What is the purpose of this? And it's not that everyone needs some grand answer um, and grand overarching purpose, but there has to be a reason for doing what you are doing. So it could be something as simple as Brad uh, mentioned there with his report and phone call. And similarly, the research has shown that if you take um, garbage men, for example, and you say, "Hey, this is this," you're not a garbage man. Like your your title is, you know, sanitation officer, and you're helping to keep the streets and houses clean and safe and all that, and helping to eliminate the spread of disease. What happens is their, you know, overall enjoyment of their work actually goes up, and they no longer see it as a um, as a mundane task that has no meaning. So it's really about trying to figure out and frame how you can bring meaning to whatever work it is that you're doing. Well, Brad, see, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about peak performance? So the book is available um, at Amazon and wherever else books are sold. So all booksellers. And then the book's website is www.peakperformancebook.net. And then both Steve and I are fairly active on Twitter. I'm at B. Stolberg, and Steve is at Steve Magnus. Awesome. Brad Stolberg, Steve Magnus, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. My guests today were Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. They're the author of the book, Peak Performance. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about their book at peakperformancebook.net. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash peakperformance, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, if you've gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. Also, tell you know a few friends about the podcast because we found that most people discover the podcast because a friend recommended it. So if you can do that, really appreciate it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. <laughs>